0: This morning's reading is taken from Hebrews, and I'm going to be reading from uh, Hebrews 10, verse 11 to 25. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. call to persevere in faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us by the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So,
1: shall we pray together? Lord God, we thank you for your word which shapes us and brings life, and we pray that as we reflect together this morning, you would lead and guide us, enable us to follow you with all of our hearts and all of our lives. Amen. Okay, well, we are embarking on a new sermon series today. There there was a slight level of enthusiasm there. It wasn't bad, but let's see. We are embarking on a new sermon series today. (laughs) Oh, that's very impressive. Talking about, over the next few weeks, what is the church for? And our starting point this week is this passage in Hebrews, which I will get onto shortly, but before I get onto it, I wonder if you would allow me the brief indulgence of a short trip down memory lane. Is that okay? And I want you to have in your minds as we go, what does church mean for you? Okay, so I remember as a tiny child, sitting in St. John's Church, Gateshead Fell, in Newcastle, every single Sunday morning. There was a communion service ahead of Sunday school, and so I would sit every single week through the communion liturgy, ahead of my juice and a biscuit, which I very much looked forward to. Then I would be sent to Sunday school while the rest of my family went home to perfect roast dinner. And um, whatever you might think of the roast dinners in your own family, I can assure you that my nana was the best cook of a roast dinner who has ever walked the earth. So it was a good roast dinner to look forward to. In my memory, every single part of that early childhood church experience is encoded in my brain as something that was totally sensory. The building was Victorian, and there was a lot of stone and dark wood. There were roof beams, not totally like the ones here with because they had trusses and the trusses didn't match on the ceilings you know that the bit where the uh, beams cross over all different and um, red carpet pew mats that were very tactile and kneelers and an amazing stained glass window. We've got a great one here, um, but in the stained glass window there, it depicted Jesus, possibly in the moment of ascension. I tried to look at it on the internet yesterday. could only just make it out. But he was kind of arising out of a swirling red robe, which was incredibly dramatic and impressive for a four-year-old. Now, as a small child who needed to be quiet through the service, there was the added benefit that all the kneelers were embroidered slightly differently, and those roof trusses were interesting and patterned, so there was lots to look at. The Eucharist liturgy was partly sung, and the Gloria was sung with a rousing organ tune that I can still entirely remember and could sing back in a heartbeat if required, but I will preserve you from that experience today. We said the creed, we've sung the creed here this morning, but we said the creed every week. And I always wondered why we said we were Catholic when I knew that we weren't. Never thought to ask anyone that question, but wondered every single week. Occasionally, we sang choruses from a book, which was very modern, which I liked. And the upshot of all of this was that I knew the ASB communion service off by heart by the time I was seven years old. Even now, I'm glad about this. Because when you have something encoded in you at such a deep level in childhood, it's more that it knows you than you know it. And it was in that environment that my faith was first formed. But there is more that contributed to this beginning. Sunday school was led by a lady called Carol. I know very little about her life, although I am glad that I've been able to meet her in adulthood and and tell her what I'm about to tell you. I can remember exactly how she began her prayers for her gaggle of three-year-olds every week as she intoned Father God in a gentle, Geordie, sing-song voice. Maya Angelou once wrote... People will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. It could be a potentially intimidating reminder of the power of our emotional communication. But in Carol's case, it leads to high praise, as she helped to formulate in my growing psyche a sense of the kindness and the faithfulness of the God who calls himself Father. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that our family's lives and deaths were oriented around this community of faith. After my dad died when I was two, I lived with his mom, my nana, the purveyor of the incredible Sunday lunch, for the following year. Monday afternoons were spent sitting at the feet of ladies in the church hall while they had a cup of tea and counted the collection. Tuesday mornings were spent at the toddler group. Countless coffee mornings with chattering older ladies filled my social calendar. There were church fairs in the incredible vast Victorian hall. My auntie led the guides and a plaque at the back of the church proudly mentioned my dad, who had been church warden. After the Sunday service, the children would play in the graveyard, where my dad and now my auntie and my nana are buried. I went back to the grave earlier this year and had the most unreal experience of my feet taking me exactly to the spot where the grave was before my mind had even registered where I was going. Church, in my early life, represented belonging, family, stability, a safety net of relationships, and the mystery of God's presence in the midst of it all. Later on, growing up through my teens in Christchurch Chilwell in Nottingham, it was a place where I was nurtured as a young person and a leader. From Bob, my Y6 Sunday school teacher, whose kindness echoed carols from years before, to the group of my friends' dads who invited me as a stroppy teenager to be a co-leader of our monthly youth worship events and took seriously all my daft ideas at planning meetings, to Keith, our youth minister, who I'm still in contact with now. There were a group of people around me who invested in who I was becoming. I remember meeting Keith for the first time when I was about 15. We were on a church weekend away at Swanwick and Keith and his family were there as he had just been appointed as the first ever youth minister of the church. It was kind of a big deal for the church to have taken this on. I chatted to him in the bar, introduced myself and let him know that whilst it was great that he was here and he was welcome to come to the youth group, it was our youth group and we led it. So he would have to just work around what we were already doing. To his absolute credit, he didn't flinch but agreed that he would come along and check us out. It was at Christchurch that I volunteered to help at the Open Youth Club as a 16-year-old in the days before DBS. And that launched me into youth work, which would be part of shaping my direction of travel for the next 25 years. In my teens, church was all about being supported and known by a multi-generational community. It enabled me to be taken seriously as a young person with a calling to lead. It gave me a space to try things for the first time and to dig deep into my relationship with God, being exposed to lots of different people's stories and ideas as my faith was forming. Coming to Sheffield as a student launched me into St. Thomas Cook's. After a year out as a children's and youth worker, I'd had some mission training, and I felt that there was an itch I needed to scratch in terms of understanding what the church was for and what the church could be. Coming to St. Tom's was a totally transformative experience. It was here that I heard, for the first time, ideas put into words that I'd been trying to grasp at but had never seen or heard. The imminence of the Holy Spirit, the transformative power of the presence of God, the possibilities of living in intentional community with others, the necessity of mission, As part of the DNA of Christian discipleship, all of these were formed in me as relationships grew with a community of people who are still mostly my closest friends nearly 30 years later. Now we are watching our children grow and lead and be community together. And honestly, that has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. At the end of our time at St. Thomas's, we saw some of the challenges too that can arise when a community has been working so hard to live wholeheartedly before God and when sometimes just the realities of life don't match up. And for a while, as we were coming out of that church community, we walked with young adults who had been uh, chronically ill, Uh, a guy who has recently died of MS, who first got MS in his 20s, who spent time trying to process, we believe in a God who heals, and yet we're living with the reality of suffering around us. We had a lady come to live with us who uh, got divorced early on in her new marriage. And we watched those hopes and dreams fall apart. We had a couple in our um, group for a little while who had just left Christian ministry And that little group of people for a couple of years gathered once a week round our table. We ate cheese, we drank wine, and we put the world right every single week as we uh, also tried to reflect on Scripture together. From there, we ended up um, absolutely neck deep in mission at St. John's Park. And that was a period over seven years where we put into practice, Clint and I, all the things that we'd been learning about the church over those years. Getting absolutely deep into inner city urban mission. Asking questions of what can the gospel do and realizing to our massive surprise that when you raise up new people to become followers of Jesus in the context of mission, those people, those new followers of Jesus, as they grow, have a DNA that enables them to do the same. They, these new Christians were not recipients of the Christian gospel They were participants from the absolute get-go. I remember engaging with um, a mom who'd come on Alpha Course uh, with us. She she had a relatively complicated life, a lot going on, uh, lived on the estate. And as she came to faith one day, she said that she would come and help me at the toddler group that I ran. And at that toddler group, there were some mums who'd helped with the coffee and tea for years, but they stayed in the kitchen. And I had Moses, who was tiny, and uh, ran rings around me on a daily basis. And alongside that, I also uh, had the responsibility of setting up and running the group and hosting all the mums, and it was pretty hard work. And on this particular day, my friend, who was a new Christian, came And she worked her way around the room, even though she was really shy, asking every single person if they'd like a cup of tea and welcoming them and getting alongside them. And I was like, how does she know to do this? Well, the only model of church that she'd ever seen was us doing that. So that was just what you did. And that was a massive, massive learning experience. And from there, went into training uh, briefly at St. Peter's Green Hill, which was a fabulous experience, and then came to you, lovely lot. So that is my church history. Why am I telling you all of this? It hasn't been perfect. There have been incredible highs and some lows, too. But these short stories help to demonstrate how my life, my character, my relationships and faith have been formed in and through the community of the church. So we're going to stop now. I'm going to take just a moment to pause. And I want you to spend a moment reflecting on your experience of the church. Think about some of your own stories You might want to speak with a neighbor or you just might want to reflect quietly. But just for a minute, how has church formed you? I hope this is just the beginning of a longer set of conversations for us together as we think over the coming weeks about what the church is for each of us. It's been fun for me to take a trip down memory lane, but I wonder why I've shared all these stories with you this morning. As we think about what the church is for each of us and how we can think about belonging and being part of church, we're going to be rooting much of what we talk about in the book of Acts I've shared with you parts of my story, which include the church being a place of belonging, a place of family, stability, community, mystery, closeness with God, learning, growth, formation, leadership, discipleship, mission, service, and friendship. These are just some of the reasons why I believe the church has significantly contributed to my growth. But I've learned over the years that it can be dangerous to make assumptions about why people come to church and what church means for us. If we were to all go in turn and share our stories, there would be lots and lots of different stories represented So, the invitation as we embark on this sermon series is to think together why do I belong to the church? And what does the church mean for me? In the passage of scripture from Hebrews that we read today, the writer of Hebrews is trying to help to support the Jewish community of Christians as they form theology. When you read this text and it's full of images of the high priest and sacrifice and the curtain, the writer is deliberately using specifically Jewish references so that his Jewish readers will be able to contextualize what's happening for them. To do this, the writer of Hebrews uses Jeremiah 31, a really well-respected Old Testament prophetic text, a text that would have been known, loved, and respected by the Christians he was writing to. And he does this to contextualize what this new Christian community is all about. In Jeremiah chapter 31... The prophet is dreaming of how the people of God will be reformed in community as they return to their homeland after the exile. Jeremiah is imagining a time when the covenant of God will be renewed, when the law of God will be written on people's hearts rather than on tablets of stone. He's imagining a time when sacrifice will no longer be required because sins will be forgiven in a new and permanent way. So by using these ancient Old Testament texts, the writer of Hebrews is not only demonstrating that he's fully Jewish in his use of scripture, but he's also pointing to the fulfillment of these promises through Jesus. Now, if you've been in church a long time, you will have heard verse 25, which is the admonishment not to give up together, meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing hundreds of times. Has anyone heard it hundreds of times? It's the core go-to verse in the Bible, isn't it, that says, we must go to church because we're Christians. It's the verse that we always go back to. And I can only imagine that this verse has been included here because some of the Hebrew Christians were probably finding it a little bit tricky and were thinking about abandoning the whole exercise. In some ways, that is hardly surprising. The Jewish Christians have experienced Jesus And they've been invited into a new community of those following Jesus, all pretty exciting. But in the process of doing that, they've needed to reinterpret their scriptures, their community, and their practice. It is absolutely revolutionary what they've been asked to do. The Jewish Christians are at risk of persecution not only from the Romans but also from their former community of faithful Jews. It would have been a massive challenge to become a follower of Jesus in this context and incredibly hard to persevere in faith. So is it any wonder that the writer of Hebrews encourages the new believers to dig deep in community. I'm looking at all your eyes and I've got competition. <laughs> She's super cute. Always welcome to have small visitors wandering around you in the sermon, it's all good. The point for us here today, as followers of Jesus, is that church can be absolutely life-changingly, life-formingly brilliant, and it can also be super, super hard. I've seen and I've lived through both. You may be blissfully unaware of all of this, but my communication is filled daily at the moment with news from Soul Survivor. Has anyone else been following that story where Mike Pilavachi, the leader of the Soul Survivor Movement, which I've been attending on and off over the last 30 years and we've taken our youth to, many of you will have been to as well there are allegations that he has behaved really, really inappropriately towards people in that context over much of the last 30 years. I read a comment from somebody um, a couple of weeks ago who said, I got ordained because of a, a word from scripture that Mike Pilavachi gave me. How do we even begin to unpick those kinds of things. Now that investigation is ongoing and we need not to focus on the individual details of what is happening there. But we do need to ensure that the church is a place where stories of survivors who have experienced abuse can be centred, can be heard, can be valued we need to work to ensure that our churches are the safe and good and nurturing places that I've known the church to be in my lifetime. And we need to not pull up the drawbridge and silence those people who tell a different story. You see, my vision of the church is not a vision for a perfect church. All of those churches I've described in my own narrative have been places where some of the people have been spiky, where not everyone has got on all of the time. When normal human people have been working out their normal human lives with all the mess that being a human entails. I have never belonged to a perfect church, which is just as well. Because if I had belonged to a perfect church... Me going there would have been certain to have stopped its track record of perfection. And I'm sorry to tell you that it's the same for all of you. The wonder of the church is that it is a multi-generational community of faith and practice My life was equally as formed as a young child around the communion table as it was at the feet of the grannies at the Mother's Union. And that is part of the wonder of what we get to do together. And it's also hard. But I dream of a church where we're not siloed by our massive differences but where we're able to work together bringing our questions our fragility and our reality if you stood us all in a line at st john's and asked us what we thought about about any one of a number of issues there would be huge differentiation am i right i mean let's just start with wednesday or the blades you know It's very, very easy to become polarized. But what if our focus, rather than all the divisions and polarizations, can be on loving Jesus wholeheartedly, loving one another well, and being agents of transformation as we step through the door? What if we focused on those things? What if we oriented ourselves around that rather than the who's right or who's wrong on the multiplicity of other things we could spend our energy on? For what it's worth, I love the church. I think the church is worth our time and investment. I think the church is one of those organizations that, as William Temple said, old archbishop back in the 1940s, is the only society that exists for those who are not its members. What an incredible thing we get to do, to gather together, to worship God, to get to know one another better, and to serve his world. It's a big challenge, but it's a high calling, and it's something that I'm excited that we get to do here together. So as we go into this season, as we spend some time reflecting on what it means to be church together, my prayer for us is that we will dig deeper, that we will go further, and that we will learn more together and be braver than we have been before. Are you up for that? Oh, that was quite decisive. Wow, well done, especially after I've preached for nearly half an hour. Thank you for bearing with me. But let's pray together, shall we? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are an agent of change, that you meet us, that you shape us, that you transform us, and you do all sorts of incredible things in and through each of us. Thank you that we get to be your church together. In our lives of worship, in our community, and in our going out, we pray that you would fill us, that you would equip us, that you would send us, and that you would gather us. Lord, whether a mystery is that we don't understand or kinks that we're um, trying to iron out. Lord, we pray that we would look to you, that we would listen to you and that we would learn from you. So Lord, we pray your blessing on us as this community gathered together. And we pray that you would shape and form us in this season. Amen. Okay, so we're going to stand and worship together ahead of going into communion.